God of grace, God of mercy, God who seeks and runs after each one of us and travels with us wherever we go. Be with us this day, as you are all days, and help us to know it. Help our voices, our minds, our bodies to be formed by you and towards you. And if they are not and when they are not, help us to forgive each other and to learn and to turn back towards the grace, mercy, justice, and love that you offer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Also, I want to do a quick reminder. Uh, oh, if that, that looks like it's moving. Miracle of miracles. Often the clipboard will like stop somewhere, right? Someone got so invested in the testimony. Oh my gosh, the clipboard stops. The clipboard stops. Okay. Um, so, a couple stats for you. We start with the depressing part. I promise it gets better. Um, I'm going to ask you to think about a few things, but I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because this is private stuff. It's stuff some of you might not want to discuss. Uh, it's some stuff some of you might not want to think about, so I apologize for making you think about it for a couple of minutes, which is, are you in debt? Do you have any debts? Do you have any financial debts? Do you have any emotional and psychic debts? Do your debts feel like a weight you can carry, or have they started to haunt you? A little bit. Um, for many Americans, and for many around the world, but the stats are easiest to find on Americans, uh, debt is a part of their everyday life and everyday experience. Of Americans who have credit card debt, the average amount is about $15,000. Including all Americans, those who express themselves as having debt and not having debt, if we include student loan debt, housing debt, credit card debt and other stuff, according to um, a national study from 2015, the average American household has about $90,000 worth of debt. Almost half of all American households have no savings. A lot of us are feeling this experience of indebtedness. And the experience of indebtedness um, feels a lot like the experience of poverty and scarcity. It's a place of fear. It's a place of feeling like there's never enough. It's a place of feeling like what you're working towards is moving towards zero instead of moving towards something positive in your life. It can be overwhelming and painful. And that has always and everywhere been the experience of debt. And so debt has been something that God has cared about. Money and economics have been something that God has cared about and that God has included commands for and visions for in God's word, and in God's being. But those have often been the part we have the most trouble listening to or talking about. Because it's strange, and it's awkward, and it's weird, and it's not what we are taught by the culture God is supposed to be about. So for a moment, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. Close your eyes and imagine something with me, if you will. Imagine that tomorrow morning, you walk out of your home. You walk out of your home and everyone else is there. Everyone else has walked out too. And you look at each other and you make a commitment to take some rest, to take a break. And then you start to consider all of the stuff that you have um, or stuff that you don't have. You bring it forward. 
you recognize that the stuff or the buildings or the land isn't yours and you offer it up and everybody offers it all up because for all of us it isn't ours to begin with the clothes or the bags or the books or the glasses or the houses or the credit cards they're not ours and so we give them up and then we divide them all back up again so that everyone has a place to live and everyone has something to eat and everyone has clothes and everyone has something to make them happy. We redistribute it all. And then after that's over, we forgive all of the debt in one fell swoop, in one second, in one moment. None of it exists anymore. No student loans, no bills, no, credit, no collectors calling you. There is no debt. And anything that anyone owes you, that's freed up too. That's not coming in the door. But you have enough. So it doesn't bother you so much. And then after we've shared everything and after the debt has been forgiven and no one owes anything, anyone anything anymore, out of guilt, we decide to do something else together. We decide to not work for a year. No one's going to go to work. No one's going to try. No one's going to make their own success or make their own salvation. No one's going to pull up any bootstraps at all. We're just going to have a year-long party where we hang out with our families. We hang out with each other and we worship God who made us and made everything with an intention for joy and with a rhythm of rest. And we spend the whole year doing that. Open your eyes. I don't know how that vision makes you feel, but it makes me feel happy. <laughs> it makes me feel excited. It makes me feel like taking all of the loads off of my shoulders. And it makes me feel like I want that to be how the world is. It also <laughs> makes me feel uh, like that is completely ridiculous <laughs> and will never happen and is nowhere close to anything that has ever occurred or been able to occur in the world. And so why are we even talking about it? It feels impossible. It feels so far from the way that we treat each other. It feels so far from how things are set up and from the way that we act. It just feels almost like a cruel joke to read this passage where God commands us every 50 years to live like that, to share and to clear and to be with one another in restful joy and peace and shalom. I find it tantalizing. I also find it really frustrating and painful. And there's a reason. It's because this is a really hard thing to do. It goes against a lot of our human instincts. It requires a lot of sacrifice. It requires, most of all, a lot of trust to be this joyful and to be this faithful with, another, with one another. Trust in each other and trust in God. And according to the archaeologists and the historians and the biblical scholars, uh, that's why this has probably never happened. Many of the laws in the Bible um, 
uh, particularly the Hebrew Bible, right, those first couple books that you hear about a lot, at one point or another, those were practiced by the whole community. They may or may not be now, but at one point or another, they were things that people did, or they were things that people didn't do. They were things that ordered people's lives. But the Jubilee is one of the ones um, that we think may never have actually happened. It never actually took place because it was so hard, so hard for God's people to imagine that we could actually do and live like that. The Roman Catholic Church um, celebrates every 50 years something that it calls the Jubilee, which is a beautiful and a good thing, um, but what it involves is the forgiveness of sin. So there's a period of confession and a period of coming together, and it's a forgiveness of sin and a time for reconciliation of relationships all of which are good things, right? I'm all about forgiveness and I'm all about reconciliation of relationships. But God is saying here that God cares about more than that. God cares about our spiritual state. God cares about our relational state. But God recognizes that our relationship and our spiritual state have a lot to do with the concrete physical stuff that we have or don't have and that we interact with every day. That stuff matters to God. Many of you, when you heard the scripture reader um, say that the reading was going to be from Leviticus, may have had a little automatic, oh, no, <laughs> for any number of reasons, right? Some of you may have hated that it was going to be from Leviticus because you know that Leviticus has often used, has been used as a weapon against queer people, right? People point to this one sentence, oh, that means that uh, all of you are not allowed to be who you are and are terrible. Um, some of you may have hesitated at Leviticus because you at some point attempted a whole Bible reading plan and you went through the stories of Genesis and they were beautiful and you went through the stories of Exodus and they were motivating and then you hit Leviticus and you're like oh I don't know if I'm staying on this plan anymore. <laughs> Leviticus is a toughie. <laughs> Leviticus is a list of sentences about things that most of us have never encountered. <laughs> Leviticus is hard to read, hard to see God in Hard to see why it is offered to us. Hard to see what it's about. So I'm going to try and do a little bit of that here and take a little detour from Sabbath, although we're going to continue to talk about Sabbath, continue to talk about Jubilee, to talk about the Bible and what the deal is with that. The Bible is a tough one. The Bible is a beautiful thing. And we all have a unique and different relationship with the Bible based on how we were taught about it, how we read or don't read it, the stories that we've heard about it, um, for some of you, the Bible probably wasn't like relevant in your life at all, right? You may be very new to church. You may have heard a story or two, right? Like you've probably heard the Christmas story. That one gets out there. Um, uh, although you may be unsure of whether Santa Claus shows up in the Bible or not, right? Who knows? Could be. Um, but you're, you're unsure of what role this plays in your life. That's how I was when I first started going to church, when I first was a Christian, um, I, I really remember, as a convert, before I converted, right, um, sometimes Christians would try and get you to convert, especially street preachers. And I vividly remember a thing that a lot of them would do is say, you must do this because the Bible says. And I would be like, yeah, I don't really care, right? Like, like if I'm not a Christian already, why would I care what the Bible says, right? They assumed a relevance that it just didn't have for me yet. Um, so some of us are kind of in that place of like, I don't know what that thing is. Some of us are in a place where we grew up um, being taught that the Bible had been written word for word by God at one time to be an instruction manual for life forever and ever, right? It's basically like the best advice column ever written. Don't ask dear Abby, ask God. Open your Bible, 
the verse to which it opens will solve your problem. Have a moral quandary? All you have to do is find the right chapter. Moral quandary solved, right? This is how many of us have been taught about the Bible as a sort of magic book that has a coherent message that is about how to live. And then you open it up, and a lot of parts of it don't really feel like that, don't really seem like that, don't really read like that. Parts of it are poetry, <laughs> and parts of it are lists of kings, and parts of it are letters between people who are really mad at each other over seemingly minor church practices uh, that remind you maybe if you ever were in a church council meeting of some of the things that can go down even today. So once you start to read it, it seems like the Bible has to be different from either of these things. It's not irrelevant. It's too rich. It's too meaningful. It's too powerful in my reading to mean nothing. And the fact that it has spoken to our people for thousands upon thousands of years, that it has guided and been with them for thousands and thousands of years, from the evidence of simply the way that I have felt sometimes reading the Bible, and it does change my life, and it does comfort me, and it does make me different. There's something going on here. But the thing that's going on is not the instruction manual thing. And all it takes is one clear-faced reading to see it. So what is going on? The biggest way that I think about the Bible is as a library, right? Because it's 66 books written by well over 66 people at well over 66 different times. So it's a library of over time and in different places, people's struggle with God. People struggle with God. That, to me, is the unifying theme. People's struggle with God and God entering into that struggle anyway with restoration and resurrection. If there's a common theme, it's that. And when you look at it like that, all of the people involved suddenly aren't barriers, right? When you have an instruction manual view of Bible, all of the real concrete humans that are involved become um, barriers to that reading. We're going to ignore the fact, right, that there might be a history to Exodus. We're going to ignore the fact that Paul might have been a, a person with, like, feelings and thoughts and mistakes, because that will get in the way of instruction manual. When you look at it as the best and most powerful and most evocative stories throughout time of struggle with God, those people become the point of it, right? You no longer have to ignore them. You no longer have to write them out. The people who the stories are about, then the people who wrote them down, then the people who collected them, and finally, and most especially, the people who we are as we read it, are relevant and matter, because that's who God made it for. <laughs> and this is how I know that it's okay to read the Bible that way. This is how I know that it's okay to have that passionate investment that is not about instruction manual, because that's how Jesus read the Bible. <laughs> that's how Jesus read the Bible over and over again. This is how Jesus treated the scriptures. Um, Jesus talks about the Sabbath and the Jubilee a couple of times. Uh, the first time, one of the first times he ever preaches in front of people. He basically just preaches a part of Isaiah that says, I announce, right, the day of the Lord's favor, which is talking about a kind of jubilee day, a kind of total inbreaking of God's will to change the world. And he quotes it and he says it. And then people from his hometown try and run him off of a cliff because they were expecting something totally different from the scriptures. When they had read that, what they had expected was a blessing that would change their lives in that moment, and they were angry that what Jesus had offered them was something different. 
from day one, right, we've got differing biblical interpretations and struggle, and struggle with God. Later, Jesus talks about the Sabbath again um, when he heals a man on the Sabbath, and the religious authorities of his time, right, the like, uh, the, the mean pastors, the, the elders and deacons who told you you were wrong, whoever the religious authority is in your life, <laughs> those guys um, tell him that he has broken the law and is far from God and is doing everything terribly. And what he says to them um, is not an excuse about how healing falls into this or falls into that, but he says that man was not made for the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for man, right? That these scriptures, these codes, these experiences were made for God's creation by God to guide the creation towards God. And if they ever become more important than our knowledge and love of God, we've just made a golden calf out of the book, right? We've just made an idol out of the Bible. The Bible serves to guide us towards the God who is the real center of our world and the real center of our attention. If it's creating a wall between us and God, if it's creating a wall between the church and God, between us and the community, something has gone horribly wrong. And so we come to Leviticus. <laughs> this thing that may have bored many of you or been used against you, and so you have this strange relationship with it. How do we see it in this story of the scriptures as an extraordinary gift from God that has authority in our lives, but authority as a story about this thing we're still trying to do, not about a thing that's over? A story about people struggling with God, not about people who have figured it out and written it down so that you have it figured out too. Where does Leviticus fit in? Leviticus is a book um, by uh, priests over time. Priests trying to write laws about every part of how we will live. That's why, that's why, it, that's why it reads a little dry, <laughs> right? Because um, it actually is an instruction manual for life. It is the, one of the few parts of the Bible that is really seeking to be that thing that we say the whole thing is doing, which is why it's a little hard to read. Um, but it seeks to be an instruction manual in this passionate, relational way with God. What has God told us to do? How has God told us to live? And I do think, some of you, this may scandalize you or you may have a different, but I think it gets some stuff wrong. I think they got some stuff wrong, right? Um, they got the sex stuff wrong. But where they were right is that God cares about sex. Where they were right is that God cares about how we eat. Where they were right is that God cares about every element of our life because God has created us. And God has created the scriptures and Jesus and joy and grace for us to live into God's intention for us as creation. And that involves every single tiny part of who we are and how we live and nothing is left out. That to me is the gift of Leviticus in our lives, that it is convicted that there is no part of us that is left off the table. There's no part of our experience that God does not care for, and that it is in the concrete, weird, mundane stuff that we are going to find God. We're going to find God in bread and juice, right? Not just in our thoughts. And we're going to find God in money and debt and how we handle it. <laughs> we're going to find God in our houses and our student loans and our colleges and how people show up for us in them. 
the gift of Leviticus, and particularly this part of it, this holiness code, is that God is seeking us out in the substance of our lives, not just in some separate spiritual realm we go to on Sunday mornings. God is seeking us out in everything that happens to us, and God matters to all of it. And this is where, this is where, as impossible as the Jubilee seems to me, um, as totally distant from how we live, it seems to me to have, there's this beautiful translation that calls it, because it's the Sabbath times Sabbath, um, sab, uh, restfulness raised to the power of restfulness, right? That's what we're promised in Jubilee, restfulness raised to the power of restfulness. As distant as it seems to me from how we live, that is where I find my hope. That for thousands of years, people have been struggling with God in the same ways that I struggle. They have been confused by the same things I have been confused by. They have been hurt by the same things I have been hurt by. I gotta be honest, today's kind of a crappy day for me. <laughs> I love being here, but it's just one of those days where like a hundred tiny things and one to two medium things have gone wrong. <laughs> and it's hard because life is hard. And no matter how close I get to God or how good I get about reading my Bible every day, that's never gonna stop. I'm always gonna have those days. You're always gonna have those days. Oppression will remain a part of the fabric of our society. Overwork will remain a part of the fabric of our society. That stuff will happen just like it happened to the people in Leviticus, just like it happened to the people in Exodus, just like it happened to the people who were fighting each other like cats and dogs and Galatians and Corinthians and every single book. And they stayed in it. And they had moments of incandescent joy and the inbreaking of the grace of God that changed them forever. There were moments when people were freed from slavery. There were moments when people were freed from self-hatred. There were moments when people were freed from who they had thought they had been and given the power to be new people all the time by the power of God who cares about every part of us. And if that has happened in every generation, if that has happened in every book for 66 books, if that has happened in every time for thousands of years, it can happen in our time too. It can happen to me too, it can happen to you too, and we know it because it has. I think all of you have probably seen, however fleeting, however suspicious or cynical you are about it now, a glimpse of Jubilee. It might have been called in your life the kingdom. It might have been called in your life grace. You might not have had a word for it, and so you just called it. <sighs> but there have been glimpses that things can be better, that there is an undercurrent of the reality of power and joy and rest in our world, that we can be in just relationship that things can get better, that we can be better, that God is a net underneath us who cares about every single part of who we are and every single part of who we've been and who we'll be. And remembering that and trusting in that and envisioning that, yeah, maybe the Jubilee is possible and maybe we should live like it can change every moment of our lives even if we don't wake up tomorrow and it's happening. God cares about you. <laughs> God cares about every part of you, and sometimes that is a challenge and a provocation, and sometimes it is a gift and it is a comfort, 
but it is the truth. God wants a giant party for us, a festival for us, a jubilee for our lives, and Jesus has announced that it is already here. We aren't building it or waiting for it. It's here. I want to tell a small story just to give an example of what this might look like for us as a community as well as individuals. I, some of y'all know Westboro Baptist, right? Um, small community uh, family that believes a lot of truly hateful things about who God is and what God wants in the world. And they travel from place to place protesting uh, all kinds of people. Soldiers, gay people, Jewish people, Muslims, the existence of women probably. I, you know, like everybody. They just protest all of God's creations. And they say that all of God's creations are bad and all of God's creations are worthless. And, and that has made so many people frustrated because we know that that's not the truth, that many people have chosen to counter-protest them, right? Um, at soldiers' funerals or on campuses or at schools. And, and they were coming to a campus that I was working with on some interfaith stuff, Stanford University. And they were coming to protest their Chabad, um, which is a Jewish organization, both because they object to Jews in general and the, the Jewish community had just hired a lesbian rabbi. And so there was a lot of things. And they were coming to protest. And at many other campuses, what the students had done had sh was to show up with an exact counter protest, right? To have signs that said different things, to stand next to them, right? To make fun of them or to mock them. Um, and there is, there is a satisfaction to be found in that, <laughs> I am sure. And I understand the attraction of it. But what Stanford decided to do was something radically different, which is that they didn't talk about Westboro Baptist at all. And they didn't acknowledge them at all. And they didn't reference them. They just, across the street in the yard of Chabad, set up the biggest party that Stanford had ever seen <laughs> outside. And I can't remember, it was basically like an inclusive party, a party of all of us, a party to celebrate that all of us are here. And they had food and they had music and they just gathered together and festivaled together and joyed together, all of them, all of who they were. And they offered an alternative place to be and an alternative way to live that wasn't so obsessed with how broken things feel sometimes. There is room for that direct protest. I'm not saying don't do it. But I'm also saying that God has invited us to something special and extraordinary and there is reason to trust in that. And we can choose to throw that party. <laughs> we can choose to throw that festival. We can choose to announce that kind of jubilee world. And even if it doesn't come all the way, live differently because we've announced it. So it says that the jubilee year and the scriptures was announced by a horn. I don't know how many of you have heard of a shofar, a ram's horn, but it's a, it's a striking noise. Um, so I'm going to ask us to, to match it today. I had kazoos, but then first service took most of the kazoos, so I apologize for that. So what I'm going to ask you to do is yell and shout and scream as loud as you can. No matter how embarrassing it feels, your one excuse is if your larynx hurts. Or if you're embarrassed, you, that's fine. You can be quiet. But we are going to shout into existence the beginning of this party. And then we're going to go live like we are guests at it. Sound good? All right, at three, I want to hear it yelling and singing. Whatever inspires you. All right. One, two, three. Woo! Yeah. The party has started. We are all invited. Let's go. Amen.